Please be in prayer for Daniel and Hannah next Sunday. Uh, Faith Baptist Church in Delco, North Carolina will be voting uh, on him as their new pastor. And so that's coming up on the 17th. So if Daniel looks a little anxious this week, cut him some slack. He said this is hard waiting two weeks. And so just be in prayer for uh, God's plan to be God's plan to be done there. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River. And he... Uh, he looked up and he saw his cousin, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to him. And he says something that only John the Baptist says in the New Testament. He says it twice. He says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And later in the same chapter, John chapter 1, he's going to call, in verse 36, he's going to call him the Lamb of God again. It's the only time in Scripture where Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. In preparation for Christmas, we have been looking at uh, Jesus B.C. You know, I'm humming a little bit, and I don't mean to be. Would you back me down just a little bit? I've got a bigger mouth than most people that stand up here behind this pulpit. So most of the time, even with that regular pulpit mic up here, they have to turn me down. Thank you. Um, we, we This idea of Jesus B.C., because you and I, I mean, you're a Sunday night crowd, so you know Jesus existed long before Bethlehem. In fact, he existed in eternity past in Bethlehem. But the truth is that he, he is revealed again and again and again in the Old Testament before we ever meet him at Bethlehem. He's called different things. Um, we looked last week at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where he's referred to as her seed. Today we're looking at this title that John gives him, the Lamb of God. That title is not found in the Old Testament, but there is a very specific reason that John the Baptist, who was a Jew, called him the Lamb of God. And you know that reason has to deal with the Passover lamb. So to find out why John the Baptist would call Jesus the Lamb of God, we have to go back 3,500 years in world history, all the way back to the land of Egypt, because this is a direct reference to what happened at the Israelites' first Passover meal. So if you would tonight, Exodus chapter 12. Let's go there, and we're going to, uh, we're going to examine this idea as Jesus, the Lamb of God. You know, how, you know what's going on here in Exodus. Uh, Israel has been suffering for about four centuries under the harsh rule of the pharaohs. Uh, remember that verse at the beginning of Exodus where it says there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And that happened time and time again until all of a sudden they looked at the Israelites and they said, we've got a workforce here that we don't have to pay anything to. We'll enslave them. And so that's what they did. As Jacob's 12, 12 sons, uh, as their families grew and grew to the point where someone, someone suggested that when they left Egypt, there were two million Jews. Well, the pharaohs couldn't have that big of a work, uh, that big of a, a people group under them with no control, so they put them in bondage, and they did that for four hundred years. And finally, God raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And you remember Moses and his brother going before Pharaoh, and time after time, they, God wants you to let His people go. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. And you know how it worked. Uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart 
again and again and again, he hardened his heart. So God sent uh, ten, we call them plagues. In reality, they were ten judgments against the nation of of Israel or the nation of Egypt, and every one of them was an affront to the gods that Egypt worshipped. The first nine plagues. Uh, let, me, let me just remind you of those in order. These were terrible. Remember, this was a nationwide judgment, a nationwide plague. Water was changed to blood. All the fresh water changed to blood. And then there was the plague of frogs. And then lice. Remember, a national, a national plague. Flies. Disease on livestock. And then boils. And then destructive hail that took out the crops. And locusts. And then darkness. Plague after plague. Uh, uh, Moses would go to Pharaoh, let my people go. No, here comes the next one. Moses would go back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh repeatedly said no. Even with the suffering of the Egyptian people, I mean, all of his people are suffering. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, and then he tried negotiating with him. Remember that? Toward the end of these things, he started negotiating with God. First, he offered to let Israel go out into the desert and worship if they promised to come back and go back into slavery. Well, that's no deal. And so another plague came. Then he offered to let the men go, but the women and children of Israel had to stay behind. And then he offered to let all of them go, but they had to leave their livestock in Israel. And he said, we're not going to do it. And so plague after plague, none of those, none of those counter offers, is that what we should call it in negotiations? None of those counter offers were acceptable to God. God's not negotiating his way with us. He wasn't with Pharaoh. So God makes some assurances to Moses. I mean, remember, Moses is the guy who was reluctant to go back to Pharaoh anyway. God made some assurances to Moses, and he said, he said we're going to have one more plague, and this time, not only is he going to let you go, but Pharaoh is going to beg you to leave Egypt. And so he, he gives Moses some instructions as to what to tell the children of Israel to prepare for this last plague. And, and you remember the plague. It's the, death, it's the death of every firstborn, human and livestock, throughout the land of Egypt. That's, that's ominous. So in the house, potentially, if the, if the husband was a firstborn from his family, if the wife was a firstborn from her family, and they had any children in an Egyptian household, the mom, the dad, and the firstborn child could have died this night. It wasn't just, it wasn't just every mom and dad bearing their son or daughter. This was a terrible judgment that Pharaoh, not God, that Pharaoh brought on the nation of Egypt. So God's plan to spare these Israelites um, is, is going to be made known through the Passover. And this is going to be very distinct. Because you remember that the Israelites were confined to this place called Goshen. Remember that? And, and they, that's where they had to live. None of those plagues hit Goshen. They had no frogs, no lice, no darkness. No hail, none of those plagues. 
And God gave them very special instructions as to how to avoid this last one. He said the key to this deliverance was going to be the application of blood of a very specific lamb for each family. And his promise was this, and it's where the term Passover came from. He said, when the blood is on those doorposts, I will pass over that house. God would not take the life of the firstborn in that house. But if God didn't see that blood, death was certainly coming in its judgment to that house. So it was literally the blood of a lamb that saved a household from judgment. And every year since then, for 3,500 plus years, the Jews have celebrated this Passover. It's a high and holy day to them. They remember their deliverance from Egypt. What a dramatic deliverance that was. You remember how Pharaoh came in, begged them to leave. In fact, the, the Bible says this, Israel spoiled the Egyptians. You remember that? They walked out of there. They went from slaves to very wealthy, free people. The Egyptians are throwing gold and silver and animal skins, all kinds of things. Just go. Just take your people and go. Exactly like God had said. But there's far more to that story for you and I as Christians, and honestly, for the Jew. There's far more to that story than just the dramatic release of of Israel. So I want to look tonight at the Lamb of God, why, why John called him that, and you'll, you'll know, as I said, you're the Sunday night crowd, you'll know some of these things that we're going to point out. He was talking about, John was saying to all those Jews within, his, within his, uh, his, the sound of his voice, he was saying, this is your Passover lamb. This is not a lamb, this is the Lamb. I love that definite article that you find again and again in Scripture. I am the way, the truth, the life. That's a definite article in grammar. It's not, it's not a possible way. It's the way. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So tonight, let's look at that Lamb of God. Father, thank you for your word. Bless our time in it. We've already prayed, Holy Spirit, that you would help our understanding. Help us not to soon forget this. We'll come across people, Lord, in our lives that need this. They need this knowledge that the death of Jesus on Calvary wasn't man's plan. It wasn't something that just happened because some religious people and some political people got mad at a Jew. That you designed Jesus Christ's death on Calvary long before the foundation of the world was laid. So help us tonight to be reminded again of your great salvation provided to us through the babe that came in Bethlehem, but also for the Savior through the Savior that died at Calvary. We pray in your name. Amen. Just a couple of things tonight, um, a couple of main points. Here's the first one. Let's talk, first of all, about that Passover lamb. That Passover lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, you have uh, the story of... The, the, the instruction, rather, of this Passover. So let's read the first few verses and see exactly what they're told to do. You've probably read this chapter before, and I'm not discounting that. But maybe some of the details concerning Exodus 12, maybe you've forgotten some of those. 
And the magnificence of this story is in the details. There is a reason God says to do everything he says to do here. Let's look at it. Verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water or boiled, but roast with fire, his head with his legs and the pertinence thereof, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus ye shall eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the house where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Let's stop right there. That's some some pretty detailed instruction. The day, the lamb, what a lamb looks like, how to cook it, when to eat it. All of these things have something to say. There are at least ten bits of instruction in those verses that point us to Christ as the Lamb of God. A lot of instructions in there, but let's go through these, and I promise these won't be long, so you'll need to write quickly if you're writing, Um, but ten of them. There may be more, but we're just going to cover ten ten that that are obvious, so let's run through them. We're talking about the Passover lamb, and the first thing is obvious, isn't it, in verse three? It must be a lamb. It must be a lamb, not a bull, not a dove, not a goat. And even though it's a sheep, it's not to be a ram or a ewe. It's to be a lamb. God is very specific on this. I already mentioned it in John one twenty nine that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. But also in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. In the book of Revelation that we just completed a couple of months ago, Jesus is called the Lamb 28 times. 
You know how many times he's called Jesus in the book of Revelation? Half that. He is emphasized in the book of Revelation not as Jesus, but as the Lamb. He's called Jesus, in the King James Bible, he is called Jesus 14 times in Revelation. He's called the Lamb 28 times. You think God is emphasizing something in the very last book of the Bible? There's a reason that in the very last half of the last chapter of the Bible, he's saying, he's saying, come. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. He's inviting you to come to the Lamb of God who's provided salvation. It has to be a lamb. That's the first thing that's obvious. Verse 3, he's to take a lamb. The second thing, it must be a lamb without blemish. Look at the first part of verse number 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. That means literally without defect. That lamb was to be looked over. They were to look for open sores. They were to look for scars or infections, for discoloration, either in the wool or on the skin. They were looking for blemishes, and they couldn't find any in the lamb that they were going to offer. There were to be no blemishes. At least on the outside, that specimen of the lamb was to be perfect. No blemishes at all. That white lamb should have no black wool. It shouldn't have any sore on its skin. There should be no scar on the face where that sheepdog bit it in the face to get it back into line. No scars. Without blemish. Listen to the New Testament passages. 1 Peter 1.19 Jesus a lamb without spot and or without blemish and without spot. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. He was tempted like as we are yet without sin. No blemish. Standing before Pontius Pilate at his trial, going through the cross-examination and answering all the questions that he should, Pilate comes to this conclusion, I find no fault in him. Without doing any injustice to the scripture, you can take the word fault and plug in blemish. That's exactly what Pilate is saying. He's been examined. He's been looked over. There's no blemish in him. Verse number 46 in in our chapter Exodus 12, you drop down there, you get another requirement for this. Verse 46 says that this lamb, where at? Uh, Verse number 46 Look at the top, uh, or or, I started to say, look at the top of the page. In my Bible, verse 46 at the top of the page. That's not going to help you at all. Chapter 12, verse 46. In one house shall it, the Passover lamb, be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught or any of the flesh abroad out of the house. Notice that last phrase, would you? Neither shall ye break a bone thereof. That Passover lamb was to have no broken bones. You already know this because you're familiar with the crucifixion story, but the Romans, in order to hasten death of their crucified victims, they would break the legs so that they could no longer push themselves up to take a breath. When they came to Jesus at Calvary, what did they discover? When they were coming to break the legs, they've already broken the legs of the two thieves. What did they find when they found Jesus? He's already dead. No reason to break the legs. Now it says in Psalm chapter 34 and verse number 20 that none of his bones shall be broken. But this goes much further back than David and his psalm. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46 where the picture of the perfect lamb is preserved in Jesus Christ. No broken bones. 
a broken bone would be a blemish. And the lamb can't have any blemish. There's some of you, if we put you up on an x-ray, if we put you up on an x-ray, you'd light that thing up with rods and screws and plates and everything else have been put in you. We're going to know there have been some problems in that past. I don't know what it was, but you've had some, you've had some problems. That couldn't be said of Jesus Christ. He was, he was a lamb without spot and without blemish. What's the next one? The third thing. It says in verse, we're still in verse number five. It says that he is to be a male lamb. A male lamb. Jesus fulfilled this in that he was the firstborn son of his mother, a virgin named Mary. Who, by the way, had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Mary doesn't get in that picture. The lamb that has to do with your salvation has to be a male. Don't let... Don't let the Roman Catholic Church or any other church tell you that Mary is worthy of your prayers. She's not. She called Jesus her son. She called him my savior. There's no evidence at all in scripture that we pray to Mary. Don't do it. So he, it has to be a lamb. It has to be a male. It has to be without blemish. Verse, still in verse number five, it has to be a year old lamb. A year old lamb has to be in its prime. We don't want a lamb that uh, if, if you go out there to, to the Rogers farm in, in April or so, you're going to see a bunch of little lambs jumping around like crazy. They're cute as all get out, but they're vulnerable as they come. So you don't want a little baby lamb, but you don't want one that's old and falling apart. He said, get a one year old male lamb. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 says that Jesus was approximately 30 years old when he began his ministry. And when you trace the festivals and the feasts of the Jewish culture that Jesus participated in through the Gospels, you'll find out that Jesus lived about three and a half years after he began his ministry. So most, most Bible scholars consider Jesus was about 33 and a half years old when he died. He was in his prime. Some of you know exactly what that means. Because when 40 and 50 and 60 rolled around, you thought, boy, you know what? I'm not 33 and a half anymore. Jesus was, was perfectly in his prime. John R. Rice said this, to be a picture of Jesus, the lamb has to be in his prime and at his very best. And that's where Jesus was when he died. Physically, spiritually, everything, he was in his prime. So it needed to be a year old lamb and that year old lamb would picture a sheep in its prime. The end of verse number five and then going through verse number six, it says, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats and note what it says in verse six, and ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Back up in uh, verse number three or four, it said that we should, they should on the 10th day, they should take this lamb. So they take it on the 10th and they separate that lamb from all the rest of the flocks. And they use those four days to start looking for those blemishes. They're looking for the discolorations and the scars or the open sores. They're not killing it until the 14th day or the, uh, the day of slaughter, the Passover day. Christ entered the city of Jerusalem on Sunday 
We call it Palm Sunday, don't we? During the following days, his enemies looked for every possible way they could to find a way to discredit him. When they couldn't do that, they finally had to pay. Remember, they paid people to testify against Jesus because there was no blemish in him. They had nothing to stand against. So he entered the city and they began this examination of him and they utterly failed because he was still found to be without spot and blemish. But there was a time when he was examined even more closely than he was during the rest of his ministry. Those last few days, even at leading up to and during his, his trial, he's being examined. He was taken away in the Garden of Gethsemane and separated from his disciples. So he has to be this year-old male lamb without spot, without blemish, set aside for a period of examination. The second part of verse 6 is an interesting thing. It says, I don't know what number we're on, but it must be that lamb is to be sacrificed by all the people. Did you see that in verse number 6? And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. Now we're talking about a lot of lambs, aren't we? We're talking about perhaps tens of thousands of lambs, one in each family household. And yet it says in verse number, it says in verse number six, the whole assembly shall kill singular it, that lamb. The picture being drawn there is that these uh, lambs were to be slain by everyone, making them all Guilty for killing that lamb. See that? The whole nation shall kill it. The whole world is is guilty when it comes to the death of Christ. My sin put him there. Your sin put him there. Moses' sin put him there. Aaron's sin put him there. The whole congregation is responsible for the death of that little lamb. Christ was crucified by Romans. He did so at the bidding of the Jews. And they participated in his death, but no more than you and I did. It was sacrificed by all of the people. What thousands of lambs did for the multitudes of those Jews, the Lamb of God did for all the world. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus on the cross. Let's let's keep going. Stay in verse number 6. There's an interesting phrase. At the very end, it's the last three words of that verse, by the way. It says that this lamb is to be killed in the evening. In the evening. The Hebrew of that literally reads between the evenings. When you you, uh, look at the Jewish day, Jews divided the day into two parts. Adam Clark notes that the Jews divided the day up into morning and evening. You'll see that when you read Genesis chapter 1, won't you? God created the earth, and then what does it say? This is why we believe in a literal six-day creation, because he says the evening and the morning, that was the first day. Well, the Jews took that standard from God, and they divided their day into two parts. There was the morning, and then there was the evening. The uh, morning, of course, is from uh, 6 in the morning. That's when their day began, or generally 6 o'clock in the morning, and and it goes to noon. And then they have the evening from noon to the next day. In their evenings, they had a first evening and a second evening. 
The first evening for the Jew goes from noon to sunset. The second evening goes from sunset until sunrise. All of the synoptic gospels say this, that Jesus died about the ninth hour. The synoptic gospels are what? You remember? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you hear that term synoptic gospels, it's because those three gospels, the first three, give you a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. John doesn't do that. John takes a very small part of Jesus' life on earth, and he gives you months of his life, not 33 and a half years. Matthew will tell you about Jesus being born. Luke will tell you about Jesus being born. John doesn't. John gets right to business. But the synoptic gospels, all of them say the same thing, that Jesus was killed at about the ninth hour, which translates for you and me to 3 p.m., about the ninth hour. Do you know what 3 p.m. is? It's the transition from the first evening to the second evening for the Jew. So in that thought between the evenings, he's to be killed between the evenings. Keep this in mind. Jesus was killed on Passover day. While Jesus was being crucified, Jews all over the country were killing lambs in their homes. And they were all being killed at about the ninth hour. That's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy there. Verse number 7 gives us our next one. What's the next instruction? In verse number 7, the blood of that lamb must be sprinkled, it says. In verse number 7, they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two sides of the post, and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. Once that lamb was killed, they were to drain the blood from it, and then the father takes hyssop. It's a leafy little bush that... Is, it grows in that area. He dips that in the blood and he smears the three, pores, uh, the three posts of the door. Two side posts and one upper post. And the blood on those door posts signified that the family had killed a lamb in obedience to God's command. You could look across the street and see your neighbor. Was he obeying God? You could look and see, yep, the blood is on their door. That blood on the outside showed that they had, on the inside of that house, obeyed God's command. It was a public testimony. Now, just because a lamb had been killed in the house, it didn't mean the death angel wouldn't visit that house, did it? Only the blood applied to those doorposts kept the death angel out. If that family killed a lamb ate the meal, did it all at the prescribed time, but did not put that blood on the outside of their house, the death angel was going to come and it was going to take that firstborn. Just because that lamb had died didn't mean that death was not coming. The act of putting the blood on the doorposts does not picture the death of Christ. The act of putting the blood on the doorposts signifies your acceptance and my acceptance or our application of the blood to us. That the lamb had died doesn't mean everybody got saved. What determined whether or not people got saved was whether or not the blood had been applied. Just because Jesus had died doesn't mean the whole world is now saved. Blood has to be applied to the doorposts of your heart. This is an internal decision here. This is exactly what you can write down there. We won't turn there. 
Peter is very specific on this. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Here's the phrase. Unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is talking to those who just, they don't just know about Jesus' death on the cross. They have figuratively, they have sprinkled the blood of Christ on the doorposts of their heart. They have taken the death of Christ and they have applied it to themselves. If you were a Jew living in Moses' day, it didn't matter that you killed that lamb. It mattered that you applied the blood to you. That's exactly how it reads here. The fact that Jesus dies, or that Jesus died, saves nobody. His death did not cause anyone to be saved. What caused them to be saved was when they placed their faith in his death as payment for their sin. Because the the fact is that Jesus died on Calvary. But the fact also in Matthew 7 is that there are going to be far more people that go to hell than go to heaven because they didn't apply the blood to themselves. Verse number 8. Here's the next bit of instruction. It is to be slain and roasted. Isn't that kind of interesting? The God says, don't eat it raw, don't eat it boiled. I don't, even, I don't really care for boiled meat. I, it just, you know, unless you boil a chicken, then you add a bunch of stuff to it. But I, I just don't, I like it, I like it fired up. I like it on the grill. After the lamb was killed and the blood was applied to the door, now the lambs were to be roasted, the Bible says, and eaten. Not raw, not boiled. The, the King James word is sodden. But that word means to be boiled. The slaying and then the roasting of the lamb picture the suffering of Jesus on the cross. He not only died, but his death was a complete sacrifice. His, his, the death that he died, this criminal hanging on a Roman cross, that wasn't a private death. It wasn't even a noble death. It was a very public and humiliating You remember all the things that went into the crucifixion of Christ. Being stripped naked, every picture you see of Jesus has a modesty cloth on him. But that was not how it happened. We know from scripture, he was hung naked before the crowd. Beaten. Tortured. That word's not in the scripture, but read the account. He was tortured. People would be tried for war crimes today if they did to prisoners of war what they did to Jesus Christ. He was tortured. It was a terrible death, but a public humiliation inflicted on Jesus Christ by the world that he came to save. That's the picture of being roasted, the judgment that fell on him. The next thing is, the next bit of instruction in verse number 10, the meat is to be fully consumed. The Bible says they are to fully eat this thing, and ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning. That which remaineth shall be burned with fire. They were to eat it with these bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. The bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, that doesn't sound tasty at all, does it? I'm thinking kale and pita. That's what I think right there. Bitter herbs and unleavened bread... That was to remind them of the suffering of Egypt. That was to point them back to that. Leftover meat, the Bible says in verse 10, was to be burned. The lamb's life was taken. 
the blood that was shed was then applied, the meat was roasted and fully consumed, and this taught the Jews that their their redemption came from the absolute death of a substitute. That life was gone. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was our substitute. The Lamb, they didn't have to sprinkle their own blood on the doorpost. They didn't have to kill one of their children, sacrifice one of their children, and sprinkle that child's blood. No. It was a, an innocent lamb without blemish. Perhaps the very best lamb they had. And it died so that family could live. What a wonderful picture. Christ said that we identify with him. Do you remember this? We're on verse number 10 where it says they're they're to eat this lamb. Do you remember Jesus saying this? That we partake of him. We identify with him. Do you remember this? When we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Boy, that'll get your attention. That'll get your attention if you're not a Christian who has some biblical understanding. And somebody comes up and says... We are to eat the, blood, the, the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. Somebody's going to be heading for that door in just a minute or two. That sounds insane. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's speaking figuratively. How do we, how do we eat his flesh and drink his blood? When we take him fully and we appropriate his salvation, we receive Christ into our heart. The same way you would take a piece of lamb meat and eat it and consume it. And you'd use his blood and you'd eat his meat. He was fully consumed. And that's what happened with, that's what happened. Now you know the rest of the story. The Israelites did this, but all throughout Egypt there is wailing and there is screaming. There is terrible misery. You know what's interesting? It says that in Exodus 11 verses 6 and 7, God said this, but in Goshen, I promise you this, there's not even going to be a dog barking. The rest of Egypt is going to be filled with screams of horror and then a terrible wailing in grief. But God said this back in in chapter 11 when he's telling what's going to happen. He said this, it's going to be so peaceful and quiet in Goshen, you won't even hear a dog bark. And that's exactly how it was. Pharaoh sent word that the Israelites were to leave and they were to get get out. And he said, do it quickly. This is why God said, you remember he said, put your staff in your hand, put your shoes on your feet, eat the meal quickly. Because God knew before that night, before the sun even came up the next day, Pharaoh was going to be sending the word out, get those Jews out of here. I don't care how you do it, just get them out of the country. God knew what was coming. Deliverance was coming through the death of that lamb. The darkness didn't do it. The hail didn't do it. The frogs didn't do it. The lice didn't do it. None of those things. But when, innocent, when an innocent lamb was, was killed and his blood was applied to a doorpost of a house, God sent deliverance. That's a wonderful wrap-up of this. In and through and by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God delivers people once and for all. He redeems them. He sets them free. He saves them. Let's wrap this up tonight. 
with abiding lessons for believers today. Because this happened 3,500 years ago. Abiding lessons for, for believers today. Four lessons to glean tonight from this. I would use this. Some of you, some of you, have, oft, uh, you, have, you have regular opportunities to talk to people about being saved. They might be family or they might be co-workers. This is, this is a good illustration here. Four lessons to glean from this story. Here's the first one. It's obvious, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. John said it twice, but you see it. You walk through Exodus chapter 12, you're like, well, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This, this is talking about him. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the only person who meets every qualification for the prophesied Messiah. He fulfilled in every detail the Old Testament prophecies regarding this one that was going to come. No other person in world history can claim this. Not even close. These nut jobs who are out there today claiming to be Jesus Christ. David Koresh. You remember David Koresh down there in Waco, Texas? Claimed he was Christ. He had no no, uh, right to claim that. None of these prophecies were fulfilled in David Koresh. That's true of every antichrist that has come along and claimed that. When that old man Simeon came, I I love that story. I don't know about you. One of my favorite Christmas characters is that old man Simeon who's waiting to see the the Messiah come. And he takes... When, when, jo- when Joseph and Mary come to present him at temple, they come to present Jesus at temple. Simeon, this old man, walks up to him and says, I want to I hold that baby. Would you do that with your weak old baby today? I wouldn't. This old guy they don't even know comes up and says, I want to take that baby. And he does. And he takes that baby and he pronounces a wonderful blessing. So thankful that he got to see God incarnate. Not only see him, he's holding God incarnate in his hands. And then he pronounces a blessing on him. He talks about Jesus being the rise and fall of many. Many are going to follow him, but many are going to reject him. Then he turns to Mary and he says this to mom. Brand new mom. Think about this. Those of you who have given birth, you got a one-week-old baby at home. Your firstborn baby. That's a pretty tender time. And this is what Simeon says to this new mother. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. That baby's a week old and Simeon's saying, Mary, you need to know this. Your son was born to die. Everything he's going to do for the next 33 and a half years, he's going to do it because he's the Lamb of God. He's the one. From the very beginning... Jesus Christ was marked as God's lamb. Mary didn't know all the details, but that, there was no way that was comforting to her. A sword will pierce my soul? What will bring that kind of agony to me? The death of her son. That's why, if you'll, if you'll look, many of the world's famous artists who paint Mary Joseph and baby Jesus... Look at the countenance on Mary's face. Oftentimes, she's sad. She's somber. When you held your little baby for the first time, you're holding that thing tight. Every time you look at it, you can't help but smile. Mary's just thinking of that sword that's going to pierce her soul one day. The artists of the world have picked up on that. 
Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. There is no salvation without sacrifice. All those tens of thousands of lambs, perhaps, that were, that were killed in Egypt. There is no salvation without sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 says there, that without the shedding of blood is no remission. There's no way to be saved if there's not a sacrifice made. Those cute little lambs, those beautiful spotless lambs, gentle, unsuspecting, led to the slaughter, unwittingly, no idea what was going on, they had to die in order for people to be redeemed and delivered from Egypt. If they didn't die, if that blood wasn't applied to the doorposts of the home, people were going to people were going to die. The death angel was going to come. So there's no salvation without sacrificing God's economy. Only shed blood brings about forgiveness. And as the great Lamb of God, Jesus had to go to Calvary to save the world. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. That's the first lesson. Second lesson, there is no salvation without sacrifice. Third, you cannot be saved without faith. Can you imagine what the Jews thought when they first heard Moses speak this? Listen, God's coming, and he's going to kill every firstborn in the land tonight. But what you've got to do is you've got to kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of your home. That story is absurd. That doesn't make any sense at all. How about God's coming with a sword, and he's going to take care of the Egyptians, and we walk out of here free? Nope, he's going to do it through the shed blood of these little lambs. Here's, here's my point. Those Jews had to trust that what Moses was telling them was the truth. They had to exercise faith that the only way to escape judgment was to put the blood on the door. You cannot be saved without faith. It's not national, it's not national origin that mattered to God. It's faith that, that makes God's salvation available to you. For by grace are ye saved. What's the avenue? Through faith. Those Jews had to trust that what God had, what Moses said was actually God's word. They had to believe that. Being an Israelite was not what saved those people. Putting blood on the door is what saved those people. In fact, that takes me to my last lesson for us to learn. Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's no salvation without sacrifice. You cannot be saved without faith. And here's the last lesson, and then we're done. If you refuse God's lamb, there's no other plan of salvation. I want you to picture two men. I want you to picture two men talking the afternoon of this event that we're reading about in in Exodus 12. One is a moral, upright, family man, Egyptian. The other is an Israelite who really hasn't been, he really hasn't been walking with Jehovah like he should. Somehow, this Israelite and this Egyptian have become good friends, though. And they, uh, they talk together and they share things together. Now, their culture is very different, the, the Jewish religion from the Egyptian religion. The religion is absolutely very different. You have a monotheistic, one-God religion for the Jews, and then you have a polytheistic, many-God religion for the Egyptians. They're different as night and day. But this Egyptian, he's a good moral man. He worships his gods and he obeys their laws. The Israelite, he's kind of half in, half out. 
he's really not the best example of a good Jew. So he's talking to his friend on the afternoon of this thing. He says, he says friend, you're not going to believe what this guy Moses is telling us to do. This afternoon, I'm going to, I'm going to take this lamb and I'm going to kill this lamb. And I've got to put the blood of this lamb on the doorpost. And we've got to eat this thing later tonight. And um, It's just kind of bizarre. I just, I don't know what to think about it, but we're going to do it. And the Egyptian agrees with him. I mean, this guy's going to take his, this guy's going to take his best lamb and he's going to kill it for nothing. Not going to let it grow up. And maybe, uh, maybe this one-year-old male lamb without spot and blemish, that would be a good, that would be a good source of a gene pool. But you're going to kill it at one-year-old and you're going to eat it. So they talk about that for a little bit. Both of them agree this is kind of a different thing. And, and, it's, and, and the Israelite tells his Egyptian friend, you know what? I'll talk with you tomorrow about it. Uh, I'll let you know how it goes. That conversation never takes place. That afternoon, the Israelite carries out the instruction for God's, God's deliverance for them. Between the evenings, somewhere around 3 o'clock in mid-afternoon, he takes that lamb and he kills it. And then he takes that blood, he drains the blood out of that little lamb carcass, and he sets that blood aside, and then they start preparing that lamb, he skins him out, and they're preparing him all out for, uh, to be cooked, and they're setting aside these, these bitter herbs, and she's making the unleavened bread, and all of this stuff is going on. And, and later that evening, a little before midnight, they gather together as a family, and the wife's all worried because the husband never put that blood out on the door, and it's, now it's quarter to twelve, it's almost midnight. And she's like, you don't care about our firstborn. And this guy, haphazardly, he goes out there and he puts his blood. He does what he's told to do. Not sure, I'm not sure why we're doing this, but he puts the blood on that doorpost. And he comes back in and he eats this meal with his family. You had a good moral Egyptian over here who was, he was doing everything right, according to his laws and his religion, his custom. And then you have this Jew over here who, not really living like he should, but, but he did what God told him to do in order to avoid judgment. You see, it doesn't matter how good a person lives. It doesn't matter what religion they are. Can, can, I, can I tell you this? When midnight came and nothing happened in that Jewish house, I mean, it was quiet. He's got three or four kids there. They're all with him. He can't even hear a dog barking outside, and everything's fine. But away from Goshen, where the, where the, the Israelites lived in Goshen, away from there, death is everywhere. Shrieking and crying, firstborn sons, firstborn daughters, firstborn calves, firstborn rams and lambs and goats, all of them are dead. Moms and dads had no opportunity to say goodbye to their children. Children had no opportunity to say goodbye to their firstborn father or their firstborn mother. They were just dead because there was no blood on there. Why did that, why did that good moral Egyptian die? Because no blood had been applied. It's not the nationality, it's the blood. Can I tell you this? I believe this. If that Egyptian had followed the instructions that Moses gave to the Jews, 
I believe that Egyptian would have had his household untouched by God's death. It's not the fact that he was an Egyptian. It's not the fact that you're an American or that that person's Jew or that person's Chinese or Russian. It's have you followed the instruction that God gave to avoid the judgment of death because the wages of sin is death. And that death is certain. It's appointed unto us. It was absolutely certain that death was coming to the entire nation of Egypt that night. Unless they followed God's instruction. You know what that Egyptian needed? He needed a lamb. He didn't need good moral living. He didn't need regular mosque attendance. He needed a lamb. And that's the need of the world. You need a substitute. I need a substitute. Where do you find such a lamb? Where do you find a lamb that's without spot and without blemish, that's in his prime? Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. That's where you find him. You find him in Jesus Christ. When John said that, remember, I know it's in our New Testament, but remember this. They were still living under the Old Testament. They were still living under the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, the New Testament, doesn't take place till after the, after the resurrection of Christ. John is still, when he says, behold the Lamb of God, every Jew present knew exactly what he was talking about. Every Jew knew it. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He he was told about all the way back in the book of Exodus, now pointed to this. First, we learned about his seed or his person back when the Bible talked about her seed. That was back at creation. Now, remember last week I said that I said that when it talks about Christ in the Bible, that it starts out as a pretty wide funnel, but it kind of narrows down until you end up with Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and, and baby being born. You see the funnel starting to narrow. All we had is the mention of her seed back in, back in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now all of a sudden we know that that lamb is going to be a male and it's going to be in his prime. And it's going to be without spot, without blemish. There's going to be no sin in him at all. You can see this thing starting to funnel down. This is, this is God's word about Jesus Christ. He's been telling people about his son for thousands and thousands of years before Jesus ever came. Those kings from the east figured it out. And they didn't have all of the information you and I do. All they had was the Old Testament. And they figured out that Jesus was the promised one. He's the Lamb of God. John knew it. He said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he does that. God's people should rejoice because a lamb has been sacrificed for you. If you're not saved, be saved. You can't do it on your own. doesn't matter how good you are, how much church you go to, you can't do it on your own. If you are saved, celebrate the fact that a substitute paid for you to go to heaven. A substitute, an innocent substitute. A substitute without spot, the Bible says, and without blemish. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's a great picture. It's one you and I should thank God for. Let's stand together tonight, would you? Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And I don't know who might be here tonight.
not saved. Lord, it, it, scares, it scares me that people can sit in Faith Baptist Church. The gospel is preached here. It's taught in our Sunday school classes. And yet I still think there are people in our church, God, who come here regularly that are not genuinely saved. Either Satan has tricked them into believing a profession of faith that wasn't genuine, or they would be too ashamed to admit after coming to church their whole life, they'd be too ashamed to admit they're not saved. I don't know the reason. I just know, Lord, there are a lot of people going to be in hell one day surprised that they're there. And so when we look at a passage like this tonight, and we see the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and we learn why Jesus is called the Lamb. Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't waste an opportunity. If there is someone sitting in this room tonight or joining us online that has been deceived by Satan, then I pray that you would break through that deception and show them, Lord, their claim to salvation is not real. I know that must please the devil, but it's, it's not real. And Lord, if there are those who are here tonight and they wonder what other people would think if all of a sudden they came and accepted Christ as Savior, would you take that away? Would you remind them that genuine Christians would rejoice over that? Even the angels in heaven rejoice when someone comes to Christ. There is, there is joy in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in us tonight. If we're Christians, deepen our gratitude for the great sacrifice our Savior made. If there are Christians, if there are non-Christians here, Lord, draw them to yourself. I pray in your name. Amen. Would you just hold